Welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. If this is your first time here, you should know that this is a Bible study podcast, and as such, it has no religious denominations interpretation. Here, we just read the Bible, and I tell you what it says. I believe God tells us the facts so plain and matter-of-factly in his book that there's no interpretation necessary. So that's going to make a lot more sense to you. If you continue to listen, we have been going through a history of Israel. We're going to jump out of that sequence uh, a little bit. We're going to come up to today, and I'm going to talk to you about what little about what's going on in Gaza now. Before we get into that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can study your word, that we can study your movements throughout history that you've given us the blueprint, Lord, for our salvation in your book. And I thank you for granting me the ability to, to look at your word and be able to explain it, Lord. I don't claim any special knowledge or anything else, Father. Everything I have is from you, and everything I have I give back to you. And I do that through the means of this podcast, and I ask you, Lord, to strengthen all of us as we come to know more about you and the work of your Son in this world and the work of the Holy Spirit today, Father. We ask you to open our hearts, mind, soul, spirit, and body to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, now let's talk about what's happening in Gaza now, but before I go any further, I want you to turn over to Isaiah. In the Old Testament, there's a verse there in chapter 42 that's going to be really important to our discussion. It's Isaiah 42, verse 8, where God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I do not grant to another, nor my praise to idols. Now, notice here that in, in this chapter, God is appearing to Isaiah, and he's speaking directly to Isaiah. Now, in contrast to that, the statement of faith that all Muslims must take is, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. That's the basic statement of Islamic faith, and anyone who cannot recite this wholeheartedly is not a Muslim. Because when a Muslim recites this, they are proclaiming that Allah is the only God, and Muhammad is his prophet, they are proclaiming that they personally accept that this is true, and they are proclaiming that they will obey all the commitments of Islam in their life. Now, in contrast to what the Muslims say in their statement of faith, let's take a closer look at Isaiah 42.8. Now, if you look closely in your Bible, uh, when the word Lord is found in all capital letters in, your, in, in the Bible, just like it is here in, in verse 8 of chapter 42, it's representing the word Yehovah. Now that means in Hebrew the self-existent or eternal. And it's the Jewish national name of God. It's a word that the Jews and the Israelis or Hebrews have always held in such high esteem. They never pronounced it. So today... No one knows how to pronounce that word. When we say it, Yehovah, we are simply enunciating the Hebrew words and the Hebrew letters that are in the word. But what's important to see in this verse is that God tells us his name in this verse. And beats me, but I can't sit, find the word Allah anywhere in that verse. Now, I want to point out to you, by in doing this, you're always going to be able to find a refutation or a turning back of false beliefs and heresies. You're always going to be able to find it in your own Bible somewhere. Even heresies and false beliefs that had not yet occurred when the words were written. And don't ever forget that. Now, the present-day life-or-death struggle in which Israel is, is engaged began on October 7th of this year, 2023. 
That was the 50th anniversary of the commencement of the Yom Kippur War of 1973. Now that war lasted for 19 days. Recently, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu labeled this new conflict as being as serious as the initial struggle for its existence in 1948. So, it's not an exaggeration to say that Israel's very survival as a nation is at stake. But all too obvious and troubling is the simultaneous rise, or maybe a better word is the revealing of anti-Semitism. It's alarming to view the large daily demonstrations supporting Hamas and the Palestinians in the condemnation of Israel. You know, it seems like the history of how Israel began and the war she has already fought in this century has not only faded from memory, but it's been forgotten. Now, what is particularly alarming is that a lot of people have forgotten the underlying biblical and historical foundation for Israel's being both as a nation and an ethnic people. You know, there are two great misconceptions about Israel's right to exist. And they have been so vigorously propagated through this, throughout much of history. Uh, they're actually worse than misconceptions. They are falsehoods. They are lies. Now, one of those lies comes from the Islamic world. But the other, believe it or not, comes from the Christian world. And both of these lies seek to answer the question of who owns the land of Israel. Both lies vigorously assert that the answer is, it's not Israel, it's not the Jews. The Islamic Arabs own the land. Now the first big lie, as I said, comes from Islam. This lie asserts that Israel's claim to the land of Canaan is a distortion of what the Bible teaches regarding who Abraham's true descendants are. The Arabs, who committed Muslims, claim that they, not the Jews, own the land. Now, answering this lie as Christians requires that we go directly to the authority of what the Bible teaches. Both Islam and Judaism, along with Christians, claim that the promise God made to Abraham about his descendants inheriting the land of Palestine, or Canaan, is basic. Now, if you Turn over to Genesis chapter 17. This record there is pivotal to the argument. Now, but the record of Abraham actually begins over in Genesis chapter 12. God promised to bless Abraham, who was then 75 years old. God promised he'd bless him and his descendants. He promised he'd make Abraham a great nation, make his name great. He would be a blessing. Furthermore, God said he would bless those who bless Abraham and curse him who curses Abraham. In Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here and later, God repeatedly promises to give Abraham the land of Canaan. We know what is Israel. Uh, is, some people call it Palestine. I don't particularly like that name for it, but it's, you know, that's neither here nor there. But God repeatedly promised to give Abraham the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Those are words that are in your Bible. I didn't just make them up. Now as time went by, Abraham continued to be childish, suggesting that, and Abraham suggested that his servant could be his heir, but God said no. There had to be one born from Abraham's own body to be his heir to possess the land. And God promised that Abraham and Sarah would have a son whose descendants would greatly multiply and come to possess the land of Israel after 400 years. That's in chapter 15, verses 12 to 16. Years later, when Abraham was 85, he and Sarah became impatient with God because God's promise is still not coming true. So Sarah convinced Abraham to conceive a child with her slave woman, Hagar. Abraham named his son by Hagar Ishmael. God promised that Ishmael would have many descendants and become a great nation. But Ishmael was not to be Abraham's heir. Now, Fourteen years later, Abraham's 99 years old, God made an irrevocable, irrevocable covenant. That word is mentioned 12 times in chapter 17. God made this 
irrevocable covenant with Abraham and his, that Abraham and his descendants through Isaac would inherit the land. That's Genesis 17:8. Isaac was to be Abraham's seed, not Ishmael. And in fact, when God told Abraham over chapter 22 to sacrifice Isaac, he told him to take his only son, just so we'd understand it just a little better. After Isaac was born, chapter 21, Sarah forced Abraham to expel Hagar and her son Ishmael. Well, that was actually approved by God. This record is quite straightforward. Isaac and his descendants are the heirs to the land of Israel. Yet Islam protests that the truth is just the opposite. They claim that the text has been corrupted. It's Ishmael that should be read in place of Isaac. There's absolutely no textual support in the Bible for their claim. In fact, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we can now provide the truth that the wording currently in our Bibles is exactly the same as it was 600 years before Islam was founded by Muhammad. But nevertheless, since the time when Muhammad the prophet founded Islam in the 7th century, this distortion of the biblical, biblical account has permeated the Islamic world. The authoritative book of Islam, the Quran, gives a foundation for Islam's belief about the Genesis account. In the Quran, Surah 2, the surahs are the chapters in the, in the Quran, uh, claims that Ishmael, not Isaac, is the son promised by God, whom they call Allah. And in fact, they use the name Allah is required to be used for his name in every language in the world where Islam is. Okay? They can't use the local name God. They have to use Allah. Today, over one billion people believe this lie. And it lies at the very foundation of Islamic hatred of the Jews and their possession of the land of Israel. In the Quran, Surah 4, Allah calls, calls Israel cursed and destined for hell. A special focus of ownership is possession of the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock sits today. Now that beautiful structure, it's a Muslim memorial, dates back to the 7th century. And Muslim belief places Muhammad's ascent to heaven from this spot. And Muslims, of course, are determined that Israel should not possess the mount. And in fact, Israel conquered it in the Six-Day War in 1967. Orthodox Jews believe it's necessary to build the third temple there so that Messiah might rule from it. And a lot of Christians, me included, believe that this temple must be built because both Jesus in Matthew 24 and Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 warned that the Antichrist will desecrate it, which will fulfill Daniel chapter 9 verses 26 and 27. But there's another distortion, different from Islam, that takes a different approach. It leads to the same conclusion. That's the claim that the Jews are the divinely approved heirs of the land is false. And surprisingly, this lie, the second big lie, comes from a lot of Christians. A, a substantial segment of the Christian church claims that God's irrevocable, everlasting covenant that's made with Isaac's descendants who would have the land as an everlasting possession, according to Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, well, the church says that's not everlasting. The church says the everlasting covenant that Isaac descendants would possess the land has been revoked. That's the lie many Christians affirm. But I want you to ask yourself this question and give yourself an answer. How can an everlasting covenant with God fail since God made it and so he has to be the one to break it? You know, the only qualification on Abraham's part was that he and his descendants, male descendants, were to be circumcised. Well, that's chapter 17 in Genesis. Well, maybe you should read it when you have time. Now, the Reformed churches throughout the world take the view that God's everlasting covenant is broken 
because of a position on eschatology that compromises truth and biblical interpretation. The teaching is that Israel will never be blessed to inherit the land as God's chosen nation because God rejected the Jews because they rejected his son Jesus. Well, so God replaced Israel to Jews with the Christian church. And unfortunately, you can't find that idea anywhere within the Old and the New Testament. The earliest Christians, they're all Jewish. Paul, the saved Jew, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, he taught that believing Jews and believing Gentiles are on an equal footing in the new humanity of the church, the Christian church, the body of, which he called the body of Christ. That's Ephesians 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. He affirmed the special place that Israel would have in the future in fulfillment of prophecy about the time of the end. Go back to Romans 11, verses 25 to 32, just verse 26. He says, so all Israel will be saved. Gentile believers would be grafted into the natural olive tree, the root of which is the patriarchs of the Old Testament. That's Romans 11, verses 17 to 21. The Jerusalem Council, which occurred in A.D. 49 and is recounted in Acts chapter 15, explicitly stated that Gentiles did not have to become Jews and come under the law of Moses in order to be saved and to be included among God's new people, the church. But that decision implicitly acknowledges the distinctive ethnicity of the Jewish people. But, you know, as time passed, Gentile Christians became dominant in the Christian church. Some Gentile Christians found fault with the Jews, blaming them for crucifying the Messiah. Even though such sentiment contradicts what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11. But at the same time with this growing separation, the Jews in Israel sought political freedom from the, from the Romans. And it came to a conclusion in A.D. 70 when the Romans under Titus destroyed the temple and Jerusalem. And Christians, they cited this as God's judgment because the Jews rejected Jesus. Now, 60 years later, the Jews followed a man named Bar Kokhba in another rebellion against Rome, and that was the last straw for Rome. The Romans converted Jerusalem into a pagan, idolatrous city named Aelia Capitolina. They forced all Jews out of Jerusalem and out of the land in A.D. 135. That marked the beginning of the worldwide dispersion of the Jews that lasted until 1948. Now, during the early period of Christian opposition, various Christian writings appeared supporting the idea that God had rejected Israel because of her rejection of Jesus Christ. Two of those writings, the Epistle of Barnabas and Fourth Ezra, claimed that God chose the Christian church to replace Israel as his special people. Now, if you look closely in your Bible, you're not going to find either of these writings in your Bible. They're not scripture. But how could these writings justify such a change from the words of an everlasting covenant? Well, these Gentile Christians taught that the Jews interpreted their Old Testament literally, when actually it was to be taken figuratively or allegorically. Barnabas argued that Moses intended his meaning to be spiritual. Now, the epistle of Barnabas claimed that the Old Testament was actually written with the church in mind. Paralleling that idea is the claim that the Abrahamic covenant was conditioned upon obedience, that it was not unconditional. So by a new hermeneutic, which you can't find in the Old Testament, the allegorical method of interpretation, well, that made the everlasting covenant. God didn't really make it with Israel or with Abraham, but he made it with the church. Now, if that sounds pretty ignorant and stupid to you, it does to me too. But that's what the church did. So Abraham's descendants are Christians, not Jews. 
and the land is not real. But it's a spiritual reality or identity that's now present in the world is the body of Christ. And this second lie, therefore, stems from a new way that some Christians use to interpret the Bible. During the second and third centuries, the Alexandrian school of interpretation embraced allegory and developed it. Clement of Alexandria and Oregon, or Origen, led the way. Oregon found that the allegory that pagan Greeks used to interpret the stories of their deities could be instrumental for interpreting the Bible. For instance, he turned over to Deuteronomy chapter 2. You find there the uh, permission for a Jewish man in warfare to take a beautiful captive woman as a wife. But he said it didn't really mean what he said. You didn't. It's not meant to be interpreted literally. Oregon said this passage taught that a Christian can go to a pagan Greek allegory and use it to interpret the Bible. So by the 4th and 5th centuries, the allegorical school, with its beautiful captive woman, supplanted the literal school of Antioch and that of the vacillating Western school in Rome, Italy. Soon after that, Augustine wrote his you know, his work, The City of God. Influenced by allegory, he rejected the literal interpretation of the Bible. He acknowledges in his confessions that he couldn't accept the Old Testament literally. But by allegory, it became acceptable, and it brought him closer to the Catholic faith. By allegorizing the book of Revelation in chapter 20, for instance, he identified the Millennial Kingdom with a contemporary Christian Catholic Church, not a future event. And the 1,000 years, well, those are, are figurative. Satan is now bound by the preaching of the Gospel, and more and more the Kingdom of Christ is advancing. Now, I want to add my own opinion here, but as I look around the world, it's not so you can tell that Satan is bound. Augustine taught that resurrection is not a physical coming to new life in the Millennial Kingdom, but resurrection is spiritual regeneration. There is no future Millennial Kingdom coming in which Jesus Christ will restore Israel and reign from Jerusalem. And Augustine's influence dominated the church for the next thousand years. And during this time, the idea of replacement theology displayed its ugly offspring, which anti-Semitism, at various times across Europe, including the time of the Crusades. In the 1500s, the Reformers rejected allegory for use in many areas of their theology. They established the Protestant Church with a literal biblical interpretation, and that was Martin Luther, John Calvin, William Tyndale, and a lot of others. But, when it came to eschatology prophecy in the book of Revelation, they continued the allegorical interpretation. So, not surprisingly, anti-Semitism was acute, especially in the writings of Martin Luther. He painted the Jews with horrible language. Such anti-Semitism laid the foundation for the later virulent anti-Semitism of Nazi Germany where six million Jews were murdered during the Holocaust. So, and this inconsistent hermeneutic of Reformed eschatology prevails today in the churches that are descended from the Reformation. Lutheran, Anglican, Episcopal, Reformed, Presbyterian, even Methodist churches, and in various teaching institutions. By this form of eschatology, there is no future for ethnic Jews in a land called Israel. But, thankfully, the literal interpretation of eschatology has prevailed in a minority of the church from its very beginning. After the Reformation, the rediscovery of literal interpretation eventually led to its application to eschatology. The dispensational approach, and I'll explain that in another session, to understanding scripture, which, by the way, Augustine himself accepted, attracted more and more people. 
especially among the non-aligned or the independent churches. And its key identifier is a literal interpretation. It emphasizes the rapture of this church before the Great Tribulation. A literal Great Tribulation is prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 and by Jesus in Matthew 24. Uh, it emphasizes the Antichrist, a literal battle of Armageddon at the end of the age, which is Revelation chapter 19, and a battle of Armageddon which Jesus the warrior wins upon his return in power and glory. And at Armageddon, it's a crucial to note, Jesus will deliver Israel from certain destruction at the hands of the Gentile nations that have been gathered by demonic forces under the leadership of the Antichrist. Uh, Revelation 16 and Revelation 19. When Israel is at the point of extermination, it will repent at the appearance of Jesus Christ and accept him as their Messiah just like Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 teaches. Following this victory, Jesus will literally ascend the throne of David on earth and literally reign for a thousand years. Isaiah, that's Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 11, and Revelation chapter 20. In this future era of messianic peace, Jesus will reign over his redeemed people of Israel in a transformed land of Israel and his seat of power will be from a transformed Jerusalem. And God's everlasting covenant with Abraham will be fulfilled. Just as the text of Genesis promised. His people will include both believing Jews and believing Gentiles in the body of Christ. But, you know, if you go back to that second line, spiritual Israel, the church, has replaced Israel as God's chosen ethnic people. And if you take this view, well, the present nation of Israel and Jewish people have no special claim in God's promise. It was given in the past to Abraham and his descendants. Therefore, there's no reason he should keep his promises to preserve Israel. Uh, those churches teach that since the end of the New Testament, Israel has no biblical support for owning the land. On this point, both the lie of Reformed theology that's inherited from the Reformers and the Islamic lie have commonality regarding the identity of Abraham's promised descendants and land. And both have shown anti-Semitism in the past and in the present. Now, some of you may be thinking that the term lie is too strong for what the churches of the, of the Reformation have been affirming for 500 years, and mainline Christians for 1,600 years. But since the distortion of the divine promise calls into question the very faithfulness of God to keep his word, how else should we label it? And there's a very practical application regarding the second lie. How do we pray about this present war? If Israel is no longer God's special people with the future in the land, there's not a biblical warrant for praying that Israel survive. So what's the meaning of the present war? You know, this present conflict that began on October 7th, it's not the Battle of Armageddon. It's not the Battle of Gog and Magog. And we're going to talk about those in some future sessions. But by literal interpretation, both of those battles are there in the future, during the time of the Great Tribulation, when the Antichrist, led by Satan, deceives Israel and the nations. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Also, the rapture which precedes the Great Tribulation, that's not yet occurred. When I look around me, I don't think it has. I don't believe it has. You can note 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. But the present war has a powerful significance. Now, the Bible speaks of recurring mo motifs. You know, past events create a pattern which has future significance. The events are, are foreshadows and foretaste of coming realities. 
Now the idea behind this is if you want to know what the end of the world will be like, you want to know what the Battle of Armageddon is going to be like, just take a look at what's happening now. In a sense, every foreshadowing is also a prophecy. I'm going to give you two examples which should be enough to demonstrate this to you. Psalm 83 depicts a day in David, King David's time when Israel was surrounded by enemies. But the words of Psalm 83 uncannily parallel the contemporary conflict. The psalm doesn't describe the present conflict, but predicts it by foreshadowing it. There's another one over in the book of Nehemiah, chapters 1 to 5. Nehemiah's leadership in rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, that was around 445 B.C., that met all kinds of opposition from the Arabs, including threats of murder. Now, the many parallels to the current conflict are uncanny. Nehemiah's work informs us about what forms of opposition Israel will face and how she may prevail. Then both of these events reveal the vile anti-Semitism that already existed in David's day and continued even 600 years later in Nehemiah's day. So it's not surprising to me that it rears its ugly head now as we get nearer the end. Why does anti-Semitism exist? Why, among all peoples, are the Jews singled out for hatred? You know, there's only about 16 million Jews in the entire world. Only about 6 million of them, close to 7 million, live in Israel. But ultimately, it's because Satan seeks to destroy the Jews. Because if he can do that, he can prevent God's plan, as spoken in, as he's as outlined in chapters 12 to 17 of Genesis, well, he keep that plan from being fulfilled. Because if there's no Jewish people, there can't be a reign of Jesus where he exalts them in the millennial kingdom, and therefore there will be no millennial kingdom. Three times in, in the Gospel of John, G, Jesus identified the devil as the ruler of this age. Paul warned of the schemes of the devil in Ephesians chapter 6. Satan is the ultimate author of anti-Semitism. Now this present conflict foreshadows the end of the age. Each foreshadowing becomes more intense, more revelatory, more frightening than the one before it. Today, the, the potential for international conflict for the use of atomic weapons is real. So, how should Christians respond during the present war? Well, we shouldn't respond as those who've submitted to the lies of the evil one, but as those who follow the teaching of Jesus, Paul, and John. Because they are in continuity with the Genesis account about Abraham. To his followers facing the times of the end, Jesus said, But when these things begin to take place, Straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. The kingdom of God is near. That's Luke 21, verses 28 and 31. But now, I'm going to read you an opinion piece by a Jewish podcaster that I follow. He's talking about the attitude of Jews today. But when I read it, I could recognize at least a small part of myself in some of his words. It's pretty lengthy, so bear with me. But see if you can do the same. This is what he this this is what he says. It's time it's time we Jews cut through the crap. For decades we've been told that being respectful, unassuming, and even quiet will make us more acceptable in societies where calling our population a minority is an overstatement. To hell with being accepted and acceptable. Yet for decades, we've coddled our Jewish kids and grandkids with a let's all feel good mindset that has infected modern Judaism and has spoiled at least one generation of Jews. 
when we raise kids to think that Judaism can be whatever they want it to be, and when we raise kids unaccustomed to facing adversity, in other words, anti-Semitism, the Jewish people are threatened. To hell with this too. By raising our kids in these safetyism environments, they come to think that anti-Semitism is on a spectrum between overhyped and non-existent. <coughs> Excuse me. And they perceive the Jews as a people, not who have been historically oppressed, but who are currently the oppressors. Israelis, do I mean? Those of us more educated know this anti-Semitic ploy all too well. The attempt to make a distinction between Israeli and non-Israeli Jews. But many anti-Israel and apathetic Jews don't realize that their anti-Zionist or uninterested positions will not shelter them from their Jewishness, no matter how religious or observant or Zionist they are not. Throughout our 4,000-year history, quite a substantial size, might I add, the Jews' enemies have been abundantly clear. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. The fine print is irrelevant. That's why we must be honest. Anti-Semitism didn't go away after the Holocaust. It just morphed into something more socially defensible like anti-Zionism and anti-Israel. Think about that for a second. The Jewish state is literally the world's only country with the term anti prefixed to it. And if this doesn't explain at least half of Israel or Zionism's supposed problems, may God bless your soul. In the outside world, many non-Israeli Jews struggle given too many Jewish dams in situations where Jewish dams do not deserve to be given. We give a damn about whether or not to tell people we're Jewish. We give a damn about exposing or hiding our Jewishness. We give a damn about not standing up for our true homeland, homeland Israel when we know we should. We give a damn about how Jewish or not Jewish to raise our kids. Not giving a Jewish damn does not mean being indifferent about Judaism, Jewishness, or Israel. It means being genuinely comfortable with being Jewish, openly and proudly, without reservations. When you don't give a Jewish damn, you don't care about people's reactions to Judaism. Jewishness and Israel are about standing out from the anti-Zionist crowds or about woke hogwash that tries to distort the Jewish experience as being part of an oppressor class, even though Jews have historically been oppressed for literally thousands of years. And no, that's not an exaggeration. Yeah, that's more than most modern-day countries have been around. When you don't give a Jewish damn, you know it's right to not give a Jewish damn. You know what's more important than you and your feelings and your pride and your needs. You know that being a good Jewish ancestor is what will ensure Jews have an easier place in this world, like we have today. Despite all the hatred, prejudice, discrimination, and double standards that are and will continue to be thrown our way. When you don't give a Jewish damn, you know that Jews just a few generations ago not to mention for centuries upon previous centuries, we're not as lucky as we are today. Past generations of Jews either needed to be under the radar Jews as a form of survival, or they aimed to assimilate, leaving Judaism and their Jewishness behind. Today, Jews can simultaneously be deeply Jewish and enjoy assimilated lives. We might call it a Jewish win-win. Therefore, Jews who don't give a Jewish damn know it is our duty, our responsibility, to nurture this privilege and to not take it for granted, so future generations of Jews can enjoy it as well. We have it good today because Jews of the past were not nearly as lucky or privileged. After all in all, 
Our pleasures and prospering are the results of their sacrifices and suffering. We don't need to feel bad about this reality. We would surely ought to cherish it. How else do Jews who don't give a Jewish damn behave? Well, they don't give too many Jewish dams. They pick and choose their Jewish dams because otherwise it's easy to get carried away with all the Jewish hatred, prejudice, discrimination, and double standards that have almost always been and will continue to be intertwined with our mere existence. To not give a Jewish damn is, for example, to read an article about all the unnerving Jew hate and, you know, they laugh a little. Do they really think we control the banks? Do they really think we're leveling Gaza? Do they really think we run Hollywood? Is that why we get so many great Jewish movies every year? If you find yourself consistently giving too many Jewish dams about all the Jewish misfortunes throughout the world, or about all the anti-Zionist bozos, chances are you're looking at the Kiddush cup half empty. Now, the Kiddush cup is uh, the cup of blessing that blesses the Sabbath. Oy vey, as we say in Hebrew, remember, being a good Jewish ancestor means nurturing the profound, plentiful, and in many cases, unprecedented privileges that Jews have today. Lastly, People who don't do a Jewish damn have a deepening and unshakable appreciation for Israel. No matter how imperfect or unappealing her politics, politicians, and policies may be at any given time. If hundreds of thousands of Israelis can take to the streets to protest their government's actions, well, so can you. We can debate whether Israel is overly nationalistic overly conservative, over-militaristic, or overly hardened by its hostile and erratic neighbors. We can debate whether the state of Israel should do a better job of taking into account Jews in the, in the diaspora when making policy decisions. We can even debate whether Jewish self-sovereignty con contradicts, contradicts Palestinian self-sovereignty. Trust me, when I say that Israelis debate these topics all the time, both in times of peace and times of war, well, as the saying goes, two Jews, three opinions, sometimes even four. But what is not up for debate? The Jewish world, as a matter of fact, changed for better, a heck of a lot better, in 1948, when we formally reestablished Jewish self-sovereignty in our indigenous homeland. Now, self-sovereignty is certainly not a walk in the park. You can just ask Palestinian leadership today and prior. But it's an unequivocally vital task for Jews who want to confidently practice any form of Judaism and tap into any form of Jewishness wherever they live in the world. And it's a task that needs every Jew to be engaged, to stay engaged in order to help effectuate the type of Jewish state you want to see. Right now, many Jews are understandably confused about October 7th and its aftermath. So allow me to provide some context. October 7th, 2023, largely occurred because of the failed Oslo Accords in the 1990s. The price Israelis have had to pay for the illusion of peace has been catastrophic not to mention the side effects that Jews across the world have subsequently experienced, especially during the last two months. It's not just the October 7th horrors, not just the, hundred, the hundreds kidnapped or the fallen soldiers. Since these unspeakable Palestinian terror attacks, millions of Israelis and their families have had their lives upended. The societal cost is beyond calculation. No less the skyrocketing rise of Jewish threats around the world, many of which have little to do with Israel. In no short order, Israelis have had enough of more dead Jews as part of some naive attempt to be liked or accepted by the international community. If anyone wants peace with Israel, 
then let them have it. But not giving a Jewish damn means not playing games with those who don't anymore. Enough of the weeping mothers paying a price for the empty dreams of ignorant fools. No more allowing Palestinian day workers to enter Israel under some mirage that we can purchase their peace. Enough of Israelis needing to justify every little military action against anti-Semites anti-Semites whose ambitions are on par with, if not worse than, the Nazis. The, the Jews suffered the worst atrocity since the Holocaust on October 7th. Did it make any difference? Look around you at the hate and vitriol. Even in an hour of enormous grief, streets in the West are abounding with people perverting the rights of free speech and peaceful protest. They have chosen loud and clear to support genocidal terrorists while calling for globalizing the Intifada. It's not about Gaza or the Palestinians anymore. It's about cursing Jews and intimidating Jewish communities. Media outlets, for their part, have feebly attempted to draw moral equivalence and question Israel's intentions, simply for defending itself against genocidal terrorists, while using the terrorist-run Gaza Health Ministry as a remotely reliable source for the number of Palestinian casualties. At the same time, Celebrities and influencers who said nothing as millions, millions died elsewhere suddenly obsess over Israel and regurgitate the words of Palestinian terror group spokesmen. Make no mistake, the out-of-whack global attention levied at Israel is the very nature of anti-Semitism. Yet even our most prestigious universities are effectively complicit in this Jew hate. During the last weeks, I've heard that some Jews are concerned about Jewish donors pressuring university administrations, thus giving Jews a bad name. When we donate, we are called out for using it to control. When we don't, we are called stingy. Enough already with caring what others do or don't think about us. We will never win the never-ending game of trying to attract other people's love. We can still live proudly as Jews. We can own our identity and stand up straight while stomaching the fact that a majority of societies simply cannot understand our minority experience. And there's a term for this. It's called hermeneutical injustice. Israel knows about hermeneutical injustice all too well. The Jewish state isn't quite good enough for the West, certainly doesn't fit into the East, and by extension, the Middle East. Even then, the Israelis have tried over and over again to make peace with the Palestinians. The start of the Oslo Accords was another iteration at this attempt, but it was a trap. How so? Because in return, all Israel received was terrorism, mainly targeted at civilians. Some 700 of them were killed in the Second Intifada, which took place immediately after the 2000 Camp David summit, which was another Israeli attempt at peace. Most Israelis have painfully realized there is no partner for peace. Since the Palestinians have no leader that can deliver on any promises, let alone make them. It's time the rest of the world's Jews and our non-Jewish family and friends accept this uncomfortable truth as well. Continuing to live in a fairy tale of a possible two-state solution only means, at least for now, sacrificing more Jewish life on the altar of illusions and distortions. If one day the Palestinians want a true and lasting peace, well, let them come to us. 
You think the world will hate us if we draw these lines in the sand? Look around you. They hate us anyway. All we can do now is not give a Jewish damn. So, in closing this session, I'm going to ask you this. Are you willing to accept the fact that you, as the Apostle Paul said, concerning our Christian relationship to the Jews in Romans chapter 11, you, this is Paul saying you, and I want you to know every one of you listening is a you that Paul is talking to, you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. If you can't accept that, then I will say in my considered opinion, you're not a Christian. And I'm going to tell you why I say that. Because when Christ returns, he's not coming for Catholics, Baptists, Lutherans, Methodists, or any other denomination. He's coming for Jews and Christians. He's coming for people who are Jewish and he's coming for people who have been grafted into the olive tree that is Israel. You realize that means you're, a, you're Jewish if you're Christian? And he's certainly not coming to take over a peaceful world in which the church has managed to convert all people to Christianity. And I'll tell you this, I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry if I hurt your feelings or you feel I've attacked any of your beliefs. I'd rather hurt you than have you end up in hell. Thank you for listening. This is The Perfect Puzzle.